I just love the Bible. How about you guys? The Bible's so good. Today, when I, I usually, most of you guys know I'm weird. I sit in my car to study just because I don't get distracted. I can't study at home because I've got four kids and they, they want to be with dad. And, and if I, the phone rings and just stuff happens. So I just, I, I've done this since for 15 years of ministry. I go park somewhere away from everybody. But today what I did was I went and I parked at a, in a parking lot right down by Beach Fest. And I opened my windows and I just listened to Crystal Lewis and everybody while I was studying. It was awesome. So I enjoyed that. It was a good time. But let's open with a word of prayer and we'll take a look at God's word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord, for just your, your love and your grace. And just tonight for the warnings and the direction that you give us, Father God. I pray, Lord, that we would heed it. Lord, I just think of the verse in the Bible where it says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Lord, we, we humble ourselves and pray, but Lord, we pray that we would turn from our wicked ways as well. Because, Lord, we so desperately need that in this country. The Lord, that we would turn away from the world and we would turn to you. So Lord, we just give this night to you and your glory. And I do just cry out in desperation that you would be our teacher. That not a man, but Lord, that your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship and honor your name. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, last week was the baptism. And those of you who weren't, that was awesome. Amen. It was a great time. There was about six or seven Calvaries there. And it was just a really neat time. I just want to encourage you, again, if you haven't been baptized, the next time the baptism comes... Baptism is a commandment. You know, it's not a commandment that we need to do in order to be saved. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you confess Him as Lord and Savior, you're born again and you're going to heaven. But it isn't a suggestion. It's a commandment. Amen? And it's an outward statement of obedience. It's letting the whole world know you want to be identified with Jesus Christ. So those who are baptized, God bless you. And those of you who haven't been, be praying that you would uh, do that next time when we have the opportunity to do that. But let's, we're going to pick up tonight in verse 42, but I'm going to give you a quick background on what we looked at two weeks ago when we were, last time we were here. And first we saw Jesus heal a demon-possessed boy. And if you remember that story, that Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, revealed himself to Peter, James, and John, and he comes down from that place of great glory, and what does he find? He finds his apostles arguing with the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're arguing with them and disputing with them because a demon-possessed boy had been brought to them when they were unable to cast out the Spirit. And the Lord looked at him and said, Oh, you faithless generation. He said, How how faithless you guys have become. And what had happened was the Lord had departed from them and been gone some period of time. And these guys began to rely upon themselves instead of trusting in God. Very much what has happened in our country. You know, our country was founded on a great faith and a great hope in the Lord. And I thank God that right now God is using tragedy to get people's eyes back on Jesus Christ. Amen? And praise the Lord for that. And we need to continue to just really have a burden for our country and that people would come to know Him. But what had happened was they they went to cast out the demon and they were unsuccessful. And you know what, from the text we know that they expected they were going to be successful. But what happened was the Lord said this only comes by prayer and by fasting. You know, prayer is our way of humbling ourselves before God and crying out to Him. And the Bible says to pray without ceasing for this is the will of God. We need to be in a constant place of crying out to the Lord. And the demon-possessed boy's father was the one that had real faith. Where the apostles had lost their faith, the demon-possessed boy's man's uh, father said, he said, you know, help my belief. Lord, help my unbelief. Give me belief, Lord. I need to believe. And I need your help even to believe. He cried out to God. And God looks at people who cry out to Him and He blesses them. And He rid the demon-possessed boy of the Spirit. Then we saw Jesus again predict His death, burial, and resurrection for the second time, at least, that's recorded here in the Gospel of Mark. He told them clearly what would happen to him. And then, 
he questioned the apostles on, the, on a discussion they had been having not too much earlier, where they had been arguing over which one of the apostles was the greatest. And you can imagine how this must have went. You know, I talked about last time how Peter, James, and John had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and no doubt they thought they were pretty special. Right? Hey, we, were, we, we got to see him in his glorified state. How about you guys, right? Peter might have been saying, hey, I'm a chip off the old block, right? Petra. He gave me a new name, Petros, right? Peter. That's my name now. I'm a chip off the old block. And these guys began to be arrogant. And they began to dispute with each other on which one was the greatest. And we need to be careful not to fall into the trap that if God has blessed us, that somehow we think that we've accomplished something. When we're blessed, all it does is make us accountable to be faithful to what God has given us. Amen? It doesn't make us more better than someone else in the kingdom of God. It should drive us to our knees. And then we saw that they were arguing, and the Lord said, if anybody wants to be great in my kingdom, he needs to learn to be the servant of all. The greatest is the least. The ones who serve are the ones who will be rewarded in heaven. They are the ones that God sees as the greatest, not those. And you know what? We saw that at Beach Fest. I'm, I was blessed to hear how many thousands of volunteers they had to make that thing happen. And you know, a lot of times people just look at Luis Palau or a band that's up there and don't realize the hundreds of man hours that went behind just people being faithful to, to build skateboard ramps and to put up the top. And everything they did, they did it for the Lord. And you know what? That will not go without reward. God will reward them in heaven, it says in His Word. And then lastly, we saw where the Lord told them, if anybody does anything to the least of these, they've done it unto me. And if we give a cup of cold water to somebody who's ministering in His name, then God will reward us for that in heaven. So now we're going to pick up tonight, and tonight we're going to talk about two things, and both of them, I'll be honest with you, are pretty heavy. And they're pretty heavy in that they're two things that are really near and dear to the Lord. The first one is, He's going to warn us about consequences of sin. And sin does have consequences. Even though we've been forgiven for our sin, that those who choose to sin, there will be consequences for sin. You know, we've been forgiven, past, present, and future, but sin still has consequences. And then we're going to see instruction on marriage and divorce. And this is a pretty controversial thing, even in the church. Because you know what? Marriage is not what God wanted it to be. In the, in the world today, marriage has gotten so far away from God's in, in, uh, plan. And some of our marriages are, are right in the center of God's will, but marriage in general, as we get to it, we'll look at what has happened in marriage. So we're going to pick up in verse 42, and this is a warning from the Lord. This is Jesus speaking, and here's what He says. But whoever caused one of these little ones who believe in Me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. From blessing, and, and talking about those who minister to his children, this is in verse 42 of chapter 9, he said, of those who bless and minister to his children, to a severe warning of those dire consequences for those who stumble his children. You know, there were no doubt people down at Beach, beach Fest who were trying to turn people away from the true and living God and get them involved in some kind of cult. I was down there today and there were people walking around with placards and stuff and I noticed some of the things they had on them. And they were literally, in a sense, people were coming hungry to know the truth and these were people that were stumbling them. And the Lord very clearly says here, if anybody stumbles one of my little ones, and He's talking about children, but He's really talking about those who are young believers as well. And if anybody comes along and takes somebody who's new in their faith and stumbles them, that there'd be better for them if a millstone... Now this stone was so heavy that it had to be turned by a donkey. And it was used to grind wheat and things like that. And he said, it'd be better for him if a millstone were tied around his neck and he were thrown to the depths of the sea. Well, guess what? That's not what I want to have happen to me. How about you? Amen? And there are a lot of people out there today that they call themselves followers of Christ and they're leading people away from God. And you know what? Let me tell you this. If, you're going, if you go to a church or you go to a place and the Word of God is not the central focus, you need to find another place to be. 
Amen? If you're going to a study and, you know, and it's all about man's opinion and there's a lot of psychology, man, it's time to flee. And I believe that's one of the people that, that are being talked about here. There's a lot of ear ticklers. The Bible says in the end times they will raise up ear ticklers. People who will not preach the gospel. People who will compromise the truth of God's word and call it Christianity or call it a pursuit of God. And we see a lot of that in the world today. But you see, if you're going to stumble one of them. Now another way we can stumble them is we as believers can live lives that are not truly set apart to God. You know, we can call ourselves Christians and then we can go to work and we can tell dirty jokes. Or we can badmouth our boss. Or we can have a bad attitude. Or we can do things in such a way that it stumbles our neighbors. You know, and the Bible says that we should err on the side of holiness. Amen? Now, we don't try to be holy so God will love us. I want you to know God loves you. But be, and we're not holy so that we can be born again. We're holy because we've been born again. Amen? We're new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We should be different. And yet, we, we need to be careful that we're not stumbling others by the way we live our lives. As believers, our words, our actions should encourage and disciple the little ones in the faith, not stumble them. Be careful what you say, especially to anybody, but be careful especially what you say to someone who's new in their faith. Be an encouragement to them. Point them to Christ. Romans 14 14.13 says this, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. You know, my, my uh, brother-in-law, when he first got saved, Lynette's brother, Greg, when he first got saved, he used to drink a lot before he got saved, and then he stopped drinking because he just God convicted him. I need to stop drinking. He stopped drinking. But then he was out at a pizza place one night, and he was having a non-alcoholic beer. And in drinking a non-alcoholic beer, somebody came up to him, was a frat brother of his, and said, Hey, you know, I heard you became a Christian, but I'm glad to see that at least you're still drinking. And guess what? He stopped drinking non-alcoholic beer after that, too, because he felt like that would stumble somebody. If they were to see him drinking something, he just said, You know what? I, wanna, I don't want to stumble anybody. I don't want anybody to look and say, Oh, there's another one of those hypocrites. I want to live my life in a way that would encourage people to walk with God, not cause them to stumble and, and get their eyes off of Him. And God does not take it lightly. Verse 43. Now here's some warnings from the Lord. This is Jesus again speaking. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Man, that's heavy. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that will never be quenched. Anybody tells you the Bible doesn't talk about hell, take them to this verse along with many others. As a matter of fact, did you know that Jesus talks more about hell than He does about heaven? Did you know that? Why? Because it's a warning. And it says, cut off your hand. Now wait a minute. If, if my hand's causing me... Now, if that were true... Now, look at the next verse, because it says that where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 45, If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet and be cast into hell into fire that will never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hell fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, Jesus is not advocating that we all mutilate ourselves because nobody in this room would have any eyes left. Amen? We'd all be, we'd all be crawling in here. We'd all be in wheelchairs. Nobody could play music because we wouldn't have any hands left. We'd all be blind. We couldn't read our Bibles. Right? He's not telling us to mutilate ourselves. Here's what he's telling us. You do whatever is necessary to flee from sin. Whatever it takes. Be radical. Whatever it takes. He's not saying, because you know what, the reality is, if I lust in my heart, I might be using my eyes, but it's not a problem with my eyes, it's a problem with my heart. Amen? 
If I'm using my hands to steal, is the problem my hand? The problem is my heart. You know, if I'm using any part of my body in a way to do something ungodly, it's not a problem with my body, it's a problem with my heart. So you know what, if I lust and you cut out my eye, it's still gonna, there's still going to be other ways I might lust. If I struggle with stealing and you cut off my hand, I still might steal. I still might be a thief. The point is, it needs to be a heart change, but he's saying here, do whatever is necessary. As Christians, we must take whatever steps are necessary to eradicate the sin or things that cause us to stumble. TV, movies, computers, job situations, uh, investing in the stock market, our friendships, the hobbies that we have, the habits that we struggle with, our pursuit of wealth. You know, I remember one time, I've told you guys this story before, some of you, and I'll tell it to you again. There was a young man in Southern California who, when I left, became the youth pastor after I was the youth pastor for all those years. And he and his wife were struggling, and he called me up at my house in, in, in San Jose and said that he and his wife had fallen into inter- internet pornography and internet chat rooms. This guy's a youth pastor. He's telling me what's going on. I'm like, I called another, I said, put him on hold. I clicked over the other line. I called a buddy of mine and told him to go to his house and take his computer. Rip his computer out of the wall and take it home. Then I click back over and, and we're talking and knock on the door. I said, that's Tom Carter. He came to get your computer. He's like, what? Came to get my computer? I said, yeah, that thing's going. Oh, but, but, but I do business on my computer. I said, no, you don't anymore. No more business on your computer. And my wife sells stuff on eBay. Well, she's not selling stuff on eBay anymore. You're done. Because you know what? It's better to pluck out your right eye than to enter into hell with both eyes. Amen. And this was a struggle for him. And it's do whatever is necessary. Be radical, if you have to be, to flee from sin. You know, Joseph had been elevated to a high position in in the house of his master. And the woman came with him and said, Potiphar's wife came and said, lay with me. You know, and she's laying, come lay with me. And you know, it had been very easy for him just to do that. My husband's not here. Nobody will know. And what did he do? He fled and he ended up in jail because of it. We need to do whatever is necessary. You know what? If your job is making you stumble, get another job. Amen? God knows, doesn't He? Doesn't God know? There was another guy I worked with that he had a job that where he was stumbling, and there was a, a woman in his office who was hitting on him every single day, and he calls me up, and he said, you know what, my mind is going into places it shouldn't be, and I haven't slept with her or anything, but I'm starting to lust in my heart. I said, quit your job. What? No, well, God's got to... Wait a minute, you think if you honor God and you quit your job that He's going to make you starve to death? What do you think? Won't God provide? If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand's going to cause you to steal, then cut your hand off. It's do whatever is necessary. You know what we want? We want comfortable Christianity. We want to be on the cruise ship to heaven, and we don't want to have to make any sacrifices. You know, Jesus died for us, but we don't want to have to do anything for Him. Oh, but Lord, you know, I just want to have everything... You know, don't make me go through anything difficult. And you know what? If Whatever is necessary, Lord... If there's friendships that you have had for 30 years and that friend, you've witnessed to them and that friend is causing you to stumble, the Bible says do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Amen? So what does that mean? Bro, I can't hang out with you anymore. Oh man, hey, look, Jesus loves you. I'll pray for you, but I can't spend time with you because whenever I do, I stumble. I need to flee youthful lust, the Bible says. Do whatever is necessary. And I want to tell you this. Be accountable. Because when the temptation comes, it's too late quite often. You know, you can't think on the fly. You know, when I, I had a, my job in Southern California for a long time, where I was flying to Northern California, I was putting together training for our whole company. They had me stay every Monday night in hotel room in the Marriott in San Francisco. And you know what I did? I called them ahead of time because I knew I was going to be there every Monday night for like six months. And I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take my TV out of my room. 
What? Uh, we can un- No, don't unhook it. Take it out of my room. I'm at home in, the, in my living room, and I know that I want to be in the Word, and I want to be preparing for Tuesday night youth group, and I don't want to be watching sports or, or HBO or anything else that might be in my room when I'm by myself and, I'm, and I have nobody to keep me accountable. So I just said, when I get there, I don't want my, a TV in my room. Just take it out. And you know what? There needs to be times when we make those decisions ahead of time. Amen? Where it says, if my right eye is going to offend me, pluck it out. I know that, that I'm not struggling with it now, but I don't want to struggle with it. You know what? I didn't have the internet in my house forever because I don't even want anything to come into my house that might stumble me or my family or anybody else. I just didn't have it. And now, I'm not saying if you have the internet that that's a problem. That's between you and God. And maybe you don't have, but I don't want to have that problem. I don't, I don't look at pornography and I don't want to. I don't struggle with those kind of gambling on the internet. I don't struggle with chat. I don't do that. And I don't want to. So just don't bring it in my house and I won't have that problem. We didn't have cable for a long time for the same reason. And it's like if, if, if I'm sitting in front of my TV for six hours a day, guess what? Time to get rid of the TV. Amen? It's time to get, read the book, Don't Wait for the Movie, because that's not coming on, right? You need to get, turn that thing off and get the Bible open. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. And look what it says. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You know, hell is a very real place. It's a very real place. And you know, we think about the tragic deaths of those people in the, in the World Trade Center, and that was tragic. No question. But you know what's more tragic? It's people every single day. While the, during the time I'm talking to you, more people will die and go to hell without Jesus Christ than all the people that died in the World Trade Center. Do you know that? More people will go into a dark burning, suffering, weeping, gnashing of teeth, separated from God, where they will be for eternity than the number of people that died in the World Trade Center. That should cause us to mourn. That should cause our hearts to break. Where the worm never dies. And what, you know what? Most people, here's the thing. A lot of churches today, they go by the, you know, the, the church growth movement. And the church growth movement says, don't offend the audience. They might not come back. You know, don't talk about sin and, you know, kind of dial it down and, you know, talk about the seven keys to joy or talk about, you know, living in your margin or, you know, how to have, you know, how to overcome your anger, count backward from 10 or, you know, it's all this other noise, right? It's cycle babble and they don't want to talk about Jesus Christ. They don't want to tell people you're sinners. And I'm telling you guys right now, you're a bunch of sinners and so am I. Amen. I just said it. There it is. You're sinners. Me too. And we need Jesus. Amen. And we don't need to try feeling good about ourselves. We don't need to, I don't want to teach you what the psychologist has to say. What does the Bible say? And you know what? The worm never dies. Hell is a real place. And there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there's going to be suffering. And there's going to be torment that's never going to end. And you know what? My heart breaks. And every person this side, every saved person this side of heaven should have a broken heart for every unsaved person this side of hell. Amen? The only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. And we need to know that hell is a very real place. Sin has real and devastating consequences, both now and in, the light and in eternity to come. And it's not too late. As long as people are walking around, there's still an opportunity that we can tell them about Jesus. Verse 49, for everyone will be seasoned with fire. Now fire does one of two things. Whenever you see fire in the Bible, fire always points to judgment. It can be a judgment that brings righteousness, and it can be a judgment that's going to bring pain. Now, the Bible talks about how that there's dross, right? And they put, in, put it in a fire and it heats it up and it melts away the dross and we find out what's truly righteous survives. And it melts away. It's a purifier. It's something that purifies us. Matthew three eleven and 12 says this. Let me just read this to you real quick. Matthew three eleven and 12. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That speaks of God's judgment, but also speaks of how God can use that refiner's fire in our own life to purify us and make us more like him. Some of you I know, you know, most of you don't know each other as well. In some cases, I get to know you because I pray with you and I talk to you on the phone. I know some of you are going through some heavy-duty trials right now. God is going to use this to make you more like Him if you will let Him. Amen? I know people here who have cancer. I know people here who are a chance of losing their job. I know people here who are struggling with their home situation. I know people here who, man, they're out of work right now. I know people here are struggling with a lot of different things. But God will use this for His glory just like a maniac flying a plane into the World Trade Center can be used for the glory of God. Amen? I told you, some of you guys, that last week, people, came in, people that I witnessed to in my neighborhood who don't want to hear about Jesus came and knocked on my door a week ago Friday and said, hey, we're going to have a prayer vigil down at the end of the street. We're all going to light candles. Would you come down and pray? Yeah, I think I'll come down. I'd love to come down and pray. Amen? But you know what? If a plane doesn't crash into the World Trade Center, that's not happening. If a plane doesn't crash into the World Trade Center, you don't have 60,000 people in Yankee Stadium today praying. Now, some of them are sincere and some of them are not. But we need to be thankful and be, be prepared that God is going to use this for His glory. And this fire, every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. The Bible says in Matthew 5 that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Amen? What is salt? Salt is a preservative. Salt is what takes something and makes it last. In those days, they didn't have refrigeration. So when they wanted to keep meat, they would would cover it with salt. But what is salt good for if it loses its flavor? The Bible says if salt loses its flavor, it's then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And you know what? We are called to be salty. We're called to have an impact on this world. We're to be a preservative. And you know what? We are a preservative because as soon as God takes all the Christians out, this world's going to be a mess. And it's going to happen, and there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. So salt is what, we're, what God has called us to be. Verse, 40, verse 50, salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. So it's a warning from God. So salt is good. It's an essential item. Again, in the first half of the centuries, it says, have salt in yourselves. Salt in the Bible points both to the Word of God in Colossians 3.16 and to the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And it produces godly character, enabling us to be a preservative in a society that has turned its back so far from God. Those who do not know God will suffer God's eternal judgment. And I'll tell you what, it should, you know, don't be afraid to talk to people about hell. Have you guys ever heard of Ray Comfort before? He wrote a book called Hell's Best Kept Secret. And one of the things he talks about is how the church is afraid to talk about hell. And I've shared with you guys the analogy before of, you know, a guy gets on a plane. And when he's getting on the plane, they hand him a parachute. And they tell him, you know, if you put this thing on your back, you're going to have the most comfortable ride you've ever had in your life. It's going to be great. You're going to have just the most joyous ride. You'll never hit a bump. There'll be no turbulence. It's going to be wonderful. And they, they strap this big old heavy parachute on the guy's back. And as soon as he puts it on his back, oh, man, it's heavy. And it's pulling him backwards, and it's hurting his back. And he goes and sits in his chair, and he can't even sit in his chair right. Because when he sits down, the, the weight of the parachute's putting him forward. Everybody in the aisle's laughing at him. Look at the idiot with a parachute on. And the guy's sitting there, the, the waitress, the stewardess comes by, and because his parachute's sticking out in the aisle, hits the coffee rack, pours coffee down his back, he's frying his back. He, man, man, this is not a smoother ride. This is the worst airplane ride I've ever had in my life. He takes the parachute off and he throws it in the aisle and says, I don't want that stupid parachute. 
Now, if that same guy gets on the plane and you hand him a parachute and say, oh, by the way, this plane's crashing out about halfway along our trip. The, both the engines are going to go out and the plane's going to crash and people with parachutes are going to jump to safety. Do you think the guy's attitude about the parachute might be a little different? Amen? He'd, get, he'd walk in on the aisle and like, look at the end of the parachute. Like, no, dude, you need a parachute. You have no idea. This is the best thing I ever had. I got a parachute. When I, when the plane, this plane's going down. Do you understand? And I have a parachute. You better get one while they still have some, man. I'm telling you, go get one. You know, the lady pours coffee on him. Hey, it's all good. I got a parachute. It's okay. It doesn't matter. And you know, a lot of people say, come to Christ and you'll have the smoothest ride you've ever had. Life will be wonderful. Your finances will be great. You'll be so rich and all your relationships will be perfect. You'll have a big house on the hill and you'll be driving a Cadillac and everything will be wonderful. And then they've been walking with God a couple months and they notice no change. They're not really walking with God. They're looking for God to be the holy Santa Claus in the sky. And what happens is when it's not perfect, they take off their parachute and they throw it in the aisle. But if you tell people, hell is real. And people are going to spend eternity separated from God where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there's going to be torment and pain and suffering. But if you come to Jesus Christ, you will not, you will not endure that. Will they have a different view of Jesus Christ as Savior? Amen? And so it's okay, and we need to talk to people about hell. Now we're going to pick up in chapter 10, and we're going to do a 180. Because we're going to go from talking in God's warning, and now we're going to talk to, about something that is very near and dear to our Lord. And what it is, is marriage. Marriage, we're also going to talk a little bit about divorce. Marriage, as we're going to see we go through the text, is a picture of Christ and His church. And marriage today has really become a joke. I've done a lot of weddings, and I love doing weddings. But you know what, I have a lot of people ask me to do a wedding when, when they don't know Christ. And I, I'm really not interested. And you know why I'm not? Because a marriage without Christ at the center is no marriage at all. It's just a legal contract. And we're going to see, as we go through the text here, we're going to hear Jesus' heart about marriage. So let's pick up in verse 1. Then He arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And the multitudes gathered to Him again as He was accustomed, and He taught them again. Now between the time of verse 50 of Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10, I want you to know that we talked about how Mark's message was to the Romans. Matthew was written to the Jews. Mark was written to the Romans. Matthew had a lot more parables and a lot of tying into Old Testament truth and the fulfillment of prophecy. And you see Mark is a much more condensed gospel. And between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, you could, everything that happens in John 7 through 11, everything that happens in Matthew 18, everything that happens in Luke 9 through 18, the warning of hypocrisy, many parables, but Mark just goes straight to the next to the text. And so what has happened here is Jesus, some time has passed, and he goes back to Judea. Now Judea is in the area of Perea, and Jesus was just a few months away from his crucifixion. And this place was under the jurisdiction of a man by the name of Herod Antipas. Who remembers Herod Antipas? He was the one who had who beheaded? John the Baptist. You remember that? Now, why did he have John the Baptist beheaded? Because he told me he was in sin. But what did he tell him that he was in sin? What had he done? He was an adulterer and he had married his brother's wife. And it's going to be interesting that as soon as he shows up in the land, the Pharisees are going to come out and talk to Jesus, and guess what they're going to talk to him about? Marriage. And I, think it's, and I know it's not by chance that they're doing it in the land of Herod, where John the Baptist had been beheaded for speaking truth about marriage to King Herod. So he says to him, but look what it says here, and the multitudes gathered to him again. What's interesting is Jesus had been there before, and when he came into the region, they gathered to him again. 
Even those who've been taught by Jesus need to be taught again. Amen? Look what it says. He taught them again. You know, I hear people say all the time, well, I've read the Bible. This is not a novel. Amen? This is not war and peace. This is the living, breathing Word of God. And do you know that you can read the same chapter 5,000 times and God can show you something new every single time? Amen? Why? Because it's not a book. It's the living, breathing Word of God. And when these people came, it says He taught them again. And you know what? We as believers need to be taught again. There's always more to be learned. And as we allow the circumstances and distractions of life to consume us, we also need to be reminded of what we already know. Amen? Don't you need to be reminded? Don't you need to be told again and again? You know, sometimes I'll listen. I love listening to gospel messages. I do. I enjoyed it last night. I've been born again 30-something years. I still love it. You know why? Because it's a reminder that I've been forgiven. Amen? Don't you love it? I'm like, oh man, praise the Lord, that's right. I've been born again, I've been saved, he died on the cross for me, he suffered, I might have eternal life. Amen, that's right. Jesus loves me. Oh, amen, that's true. I love that. I love being reminded of God's love, of God's grace and God's mercy. And they can tell me about it every single day and that's just fine with me. And Jesus taught them again. And we need to be taught again. We don't just go to, the, go to the church so that, well, you know, I haven't been in a week and God will you know, I'll get a big black mark up in heaven if I don't go to church. We go because we need to be taught again. Amen? And what the Lord wants to teach us. Verse 2, And the Pharisees came out and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. Remember again, they're in the land of Herod Antipas. The Pharisees come out. And have you ever noticed the Pharisees always come out and they always have one thing on their mind, to test Jesus. They're never seeking godly wisdom. They're never seeking godly counsel. There was one Pharisee who came to Jesus Christ who truly sought wisdom. What was his name? Nicodemus. And you know what happened to him? He got saved. Amen? Jesus told him, you must be born again. And we see Nicodemus is one of the men who shows up when Jesus was crucified with Joseph of Arimathea. Now, what happened to Nicodemus? He came seeking wisdom. These men came seeking to test God. And you know what? If you test God, you're going to lose every time. Now, the question that they ask is actually a good question. But because they're asking about divorce. Is it lawful? Now, they had asked him about the Sabbath, and he had, he had proven them to be wrong. They asked about signs. They continually, been, continually failed in trying to trip up Jesus Christ. But that subject of divorce and of marriage was controversial then, and it's controversial today. You know, the divorce rate continues to climb. The last study I saw says one out of every 1.8 marriages fails. That means more than half of all marriages end in divorce, 55%. Divorce has invaded even the homes of Christian leaders. Somebody once said that, that commented that couples are married for better, for worse, just not for long. And that's sad. Better for worse, but not really. You know what I mean? I mean, but, but not for very long. And they say to him, is it lawful? And this is, again... It's a hotly debated difference between some of the rabbis. And the question really was a good question. It was just that, how did they ask Him? Look what it says at the end of verse 2. They asked, testing Him. They weren't seeking godly counsel. They weren't looking for godly wisdom. They wanted to test the Lord. They wanted to trip Him up. Now, there was division even among the rabbis. The Shamites, those who followed a man by the name of Shammai, interpreted the law rigidly and said you could only divorce in cases of sexual immorality. The Hillites permitted divorce for any reason. You can come home, your wife burnt your dinner. I divorced thee, I divorced thee, I divorced thee. You're done, get out of here. And they, that's serious. There was no writing, nothing. They said, you had to say, I divorced you three times, and you could kick him out in the street. Oh, burnt my toast, you're out of here. 
And, they, and so there was this division between the Shamites and the Hillites, and, they were, and they, some believed, oh man, you've got to be rigid about it, and some were over here. Now they came asking them this question, because they knew no matter what answer he gave, that some people would not agree with him. And they were trying to bring division. And they also knew that he might offend Herod, and maybe he too would end up like John the Baptist. Maybe Herod will hear what he has to say, and he'll get beheaded too. And so they come making accusation, trying to trip up Jesus and to get him to speak controversy and contrary to what they were teaching. And again, maybe to even face the wrath of Herod. Verse 3. Now watch what Jesus does when people come testing him. This is exactly what you should do. When people come and try to test you, this is what you should do. The same thing Jesus did. And Jesus answered and said to him, What did Moses command you? Where did he take him? To the Word of God. He took him to Scripture. If someone comes and asks you, someone comes and tests you, someone comes and tries you, don't give them your opinion because your opinion means nothing. Amen? You know, people come to me for counseling. You know what I tell them? I don't know anything, but I know where all the answers are. Amen? I don't know the answers, but I know where they are. I got the answer book. I remember when I was in school, did you ever accidentally get to like the teacher's editions of the math book? You know what I'm talking about? And all the answers are in there? I'll never forget that. I'm in like fifth grade. Oh, I got the teacher's edition, right? Teacher usually finds out in a couple of days and takes it away from him. But for a while, you look pretty smart. Oh, I know the answer to that one. Oh, I know the answer to that one. Because I got the answer book, right? Well, guess what? When it comes to life, I got the answer book. Amen? This is it right here. This is a teacher's edition. And right here is all the answers. And that's why when I, when I counsel people, the first question I always ask them is, do you believe in the Word of God? Yeah, I do. Great. We got a lot we can talk about. Because I'll take you to where the answers are. Because the answer is in Jesus Christ. And so what did he do when they tried to test him? He took him to the Word of God. And he's and he is the Word of God. And I love that. He just took him right to it. And I want to say this too. Note that the Lord comes into a highly tense situation. He comes in where he's gonna he could possibly face accusation. He comes in. Do you think Jesus knew that John the Baptist had been beheaded? Of course he did. He's God. He knows everything. It's always a trick question. If I ask you if Jesus knew, the answer is always yes. Amen? Okay, that's a trick question. Does Jesus know? Yes, he does. It doesn't matter what the rest of that question is. The answer is yes. So Jesus knew that John the Baptist had been beheaded. Did he water down his answer? Oh, I better not say anything because Herod Antipas might want to kill. He didn't waver. He didn't back down. He didn't slow down. He spoke up. And you know what? That's exactly what we are to do because God is in control. Jesus or as disciples when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, never once wavered in their words, no matter what the potential consequence. And you know what? We live in a country where the consequences are pretty low. You know, no, I don't know one American who's been killed for preaching Jesus Christ in the United States. I can't think of one. And maybe it has happened, but if it is, it's rare. There are people in other countries being killed for their faith all the time, and you know what? They're not shy. And we need not to be shy either. We need to be vocal about our faith. So he answers their question. He points them to Scripture. Not teaching the opinions of men. Not saying, well, Shammai says, and Hillel says. And, and you know what? I get tired of even pastors saying that. Well, you know, this great scholar over here says, I don't care what the scholar says. What does the Bible say? Amen? If you want to point to what a scholar said and how it pulled out what's in the Bible, I'm okay with that. But you very rarely hear me quote men. I'm going to quote the Word. Why? Because men make mistakes. All men. And you know what? Don't even say, well, my pastor says, say, what does the Bible say? Amen? Read the book. Get people into God's Word. And Jesus did not come to do away with the law because He points them back to Moses. 
He says, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. So he's going to explain to them the law of Moses. And they understood and knew where the law was. They were people who believed in it. Verse 4, and they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And you know what? They actually answered this question right. Because in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, Moses permitted a husband to write a certificate of divorce in cases of sexual impurity only. But he didn't command it, he allowed it. And you know what, I want to tell you, let me tell you something right now, and and I'm going to be balanced in this at the end, I promise you. So if this starts to feel pretty heavy, I promise you before it's over, I'm going to share with you the grace of God. But I want you to know this, divorce is never, ever, ever, ever God's highest. Ever. It's not. God's highest is always restoration. Now, are there times when when people are going to be divorced and... God condones it. The answer is yes. Okay? But it's never God's highest. God's highest would always be restoration. We need to err on the side of trying to make it work longer than we're supposed to. You know what I mean? No matter what, try to be reconciled. It's God's highest. So the Pharisees were forced to concede that it doesn't command it anywhere. And he ruled, and you know what else though? When Moses gave this command, he was ruling out divorce for any other reason. You couldn't come home and say, my wife burned the toast, I divorced thee, I divorced thee. I divorced. If, you, if you went by the law of Moses, you couldn't do that anymore. Only because of sexual immorality was divorce allowed. And it was a safeguard against the other things. It was not some way of a big loophole. Oh, there's the loophole. I can get out of marriage now. That's not why he did it. Verse 5, and look what it says. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, He wrote you this precept. Because of the hardness of man's heart, the hardness of your heart refers to the inability to understand because of a rebellious attitude, obstinate and unresponsive to the truth. Have you ever met people like that? Just a hard heart. I don't care. They don't care. They're not going to admit anything. They won't believe anything is the truth. They don't care. You could say, man, that's a straight line. No, it's not. The sky's blue. No, it's not, right? Obstinate, rebellious, an attitude. And there's people that I've shared my faith with, and man, they just get angry. They don't want, you know why? They don't want to give up the throne of their own life. They're, they're just in rebellion against God. And there's people like that. Let me read something to you. Psalm 95, 8 through 11 says this Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. As in the day of the trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved by that generation, and said, It is my people who go, who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You know what? People who have hardened their heart toward God are going to face godly wrath and godly judgment. Did you know that? Again, that's not something you hear in most churches. Oh man, people aren't coming back now. That's it. They'll never come. That's okay. Preach God's Word. It isn't about being popular with men. It's being faithful to God. Amen? And so he just he said, look, because this is out in the wilderness, they wandered for 40 years, and they turned their back on God. He said, you know, because of your rebellion, because you're a stiff and perverse, stiff-necked and perverse generation, I'm going to pour out my wrath upon you. And you know what? We need to cry out. And we cry out and say, God bless America. We have to remember that verse. If my people, and that's talking about Israel, but it's a precept for today too. If my people, that's, the, that's Israel, but it can also be pointing towards Christian. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and people love that part, Humble themselves and pray, and people are willing to pray. But the rest of the verse says, and turn from their wicked ways. That's the part people don't want to turn. 
You know, I want, we want to keep aborting millions of babies every single year. We want to continue to have pornography be a multi-billion dollar industry. We want to have child pornography, and we want, you know, we want to steal, and we want to lie, and we want to say it's okay to have adultery. We want to be entertained by violence, and we want to turn our back on God completely. But, you know, we want to pray, and we want God to bless America. I want to tell you something. God will not bless America until we turn from our wicked ways. Amen? That's a heavy message. You know, everybody's praying and it's okay. You know, just have a moment of silence. Moment of silence is not going to change anything. We need to fall on our face and repent and say, God, forgive us. Amen? And it needs to start with us. Lord, forgive me. And that's all it's done. Every time I see people pray, I'm saying, Lord, start with me. You know, draw a circle around Dave and start a revival in this circle right here. Start with my heart. Let me repent. Let me get right with you. Please forgive me. Wherever I've compromised, show me, Lord. Let me serve you with my whole heart. If anything's more important than you, then rip it out of my life, Lord. I want to serve you. I want to love you. I want to honor you. May I not regret anything when I stand before you, Lord. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, searching for one who He can show Himself strong on account of. I want to be that guy. Amen? He's looking. And He's just looking for somebody to say, Lord, use me. I don't want to have that heart. Lord, use me. And instead we have men. And He's saying... He, he, says, man, these rebellious generation, they're in rebellion against me. They're saying, Lord, we don't need you anymore. Our country's great. You know what? Our country's not great if we don't have God. Amen? You know, and, we're, and we can have all the planes we want to have, but if we don't have Jesus Christ on our side, we're in big trouble. And you know what? I pray for our president, and I'm thankful for our president. Amen? I'm thankful that he'll say, you know, either on our side or the terrorist side, but I'm really thankful that I hear him quoting Scripture. I'm really thankful when Luis Palau said last night that he was back there with 20 other men and they prayed with our president for an hour and 15 minutes. And George Bush gave to all these 20 spiritual leaders his, his testimony of how he came to know Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord for our president. Amen? And we need to continue to pray for him. But we as a nation need to turn and get away from this rebellion. And he said they allowed this. He permitted the certificate of divorce to dismiss her because of the hardness of your heart. He wrote this into the precept. Because you have stiffened your neck against God. Because you no longer understand what marriage is really all about. Malachi 2.16 says, For the Lord God of Israel says that He hates divorce. Isn't it amazing? God doesn't say He hates very many things. But He hates divorce. He hates sin, and he hates divorce. It's incredible to me. To fully understand the biblical view of divorce, we must look at it through the Lord's view of marriage. Verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So what does the Lord do? He takes them back first to the reason that marriage exists to begin with. So I'm going to give you the reason that marriage exists, and then I'm going to give you four characteristics of a godly marriage. Okay, First of all, the reason for marriage is when Jesus, when God, well, Jesus was there too. When God created the universe, do you know after each day He said, and it was good. And God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And on the sixth day, He looked around and He said, and it was very good. Do you know later though in the text, He looked at Adam and He said, it says in Genesis 1, 31, He says, then He saw everything that, that He saw and it was good. But then later in chapter, two, chapter 3, excuse me, He looked and He said of Adam that man was alone. And it was not good. It was not good that man was alone. And the Lord said, I am going to make a companion, someone comparable to him. So why did God create marriage? He created marriage to complete man. Man was incomplete without woman. And I love the fact that He took a rib from the side of Adam to create the woman. I share this in every wedding I do, that He didn't take a rib from his head, he didn't take a bone from his head, 
that, he, that she might walk on top of him. He didn't take a bone from Adam's foot that he might tread upon her. And he didn't take a, a bone from his chest that, she might go in, that he might go behind her. Or a bone from the back that she might trail behind him. But he, but he took a rib that she might be near and dear to his heart. Amen? That's what the Lord did. And he took this rib and he created woman, Eve, and he made her the completer of man. The man Adam was incomplete without woman. And so the reason for marriage was to make them complete. Marriage makes it also makes it possible for the human race to continue because Jesus made the mandate of Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. So he says here in the beginning, he takes them back to Genesis and he says, but from the beginning God made them male and female. So God made them male and female and they were incomplete without each other. And the two of them together are made complete. And the Lord goes back to the reason for marriage. Then he says in verse 7, and let me give you the four characteristics. The first one is, it's divinely appointed union. God is the author of marriage. It's an institution created by God. He established marriage, and only God can control its character and its laws. No court of law, no public opinion can change what God has established. You know, the world can change what they call a marriage. We see this going on today, don't we? Don't people want to have... Man and man marriages, women and women marriages, right? Homosexual marriage. We're fighting for that. And we want to have live-in partnerships and domestic this and domestic that. You know what? They can pass any laws they want, but the laws of man do not define what marriage is because God created it. Amen? And God didn't create... He created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? Amen? He didn't create man and man. He, didn't, he created one man and one woman. He didn't create five women and one man either. Amen? See, a lot of the Old Testament... Uh, Guy's blowing it on that one, but you know, he didn't create one man and five. He created one man and one woman, and that's a marriage. And anything apart from that is perversion, and God says so. And so, first of all, it's divinely appointed by God. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one. So, the second thing is, not only is it divinely appointed by God, but it's a physical union. The man and the wife become one. When a man and woman come together, they become as one. And no one would contemplate severing a limb. I wouldn't cut off my arm for any amount of money in the world. And how much more crazy is it that I would cut myself in half? And the Lord says that we have become one. I am one with my wife. It's no longer just me anymore. It's no longer Dave. It's me and my wife. We're one in God's eyes. And so it's divinely appointed, it is a physical union, and yet this is precisely emotional and spiritual result of fracturing a marriage. It's like cutting somebody in half. There's nothing but debris. Everybody gets hurt. It's, a, it's like a death. And whenever you talk to people that have been gone through a divorce, it's just brutal. And what happens is you get your eyes off of God. Then I already said that marriage is a union between one, one woman and one man. Group marriages, gay marriages, other variations are contrary to the will of God. And no matter what the world says, no matter what psychologists say, any marriage that is other than one woman and one man is perverse. Verse 9, verse, eight, or verse nine. Excuse me. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. So not only is it a divinely appointed union by God, not only is it a physical union, not only is it a relationship between one man and one woman, but it is a permanent union. Amen? What God has joined together, let no man separate. 
We are never to go contrary to what God has done. If God has done it, we need to be in line with it. God's original design was that one man and one woman would spend one life together. Amen? You know what? People, people struggle with AIDS. You know, I don't worry about getting AIDS. I don't. Now, I'm not saying that people that aren't in aberrant behavior don't get AIDS. And we, don't, and we need to pray for those people. But I also believe that the Bible talks about in the end times that God would bring pestilence on the land. I believe AIDS is a pestilence. Why? Because the number one way you get it is through having multiple sexual partners outside of marriage and through IV drug use. Well, you know what? I will never in the rest of my life be with anybody other than my wife, and I'm not doing any drugs anytime soon. So I'm not worried about AIDS. It's a pestilence that comes. Now, you know what? Not that I'm a righteous man. Not that I don't sin. I do, and I make mistakes. Okay? I don't want to come across as holier than thou, because I'm not. I'm in desperate need of my Savior, Jesus Christ. But you know what? Pestilence comes when we get outside of God's will. You know what? Why? I was a youth pastor for many, many years, and I would look at kids who came from broken homes, and you could tell them like that. And you look at kids who grew up in a godly home with godly parents who loved them, who nurtured them, who ministered to them the truth of God's Word, and man, it was awesome. You could pick them out like that. And what happens is divorce not only tears up the two people, but it destroys the children. The children are the ping pong ball stuck in the middle getting, getting pulled like this. And nobody cares anymore, and they become a tool. And it's so brutal. And it breaks the heart of God. And so marriage is a permanent union. And is, divorce is most often a device of man created to annul the authority of God. God ordains marriage and it cannot be broken by man. Again, as I said, God hates divorce. And you know what? Let me say this, you guys. If you're in here and you're married, that word should never, ever, ever come out of your mouth. Ever. I've heard Christians get mad. I just divorce you. Whoa. Don't, that word should not even come out of your mouth. Amen? That's not even, I should just cut myself in half with a saw, right? I mean, that's what I'm saying. Why would I say something stupid like that? And you know, we don't need to say that. I want my, my wife knows that I will never leave. I don't care what happens. I'm not going, she's my wife forever. That's it. We're married. No matter what. If anything ever happens to my wife, I'm not getting married again. She's my wife, that's it. I'm done. Why? Because she's the one God gave me. And I'm excited about, praise the Lord, amen? And I don't need anything else. And God knew what I needed. And he gave me my wife. Now, I want to give you a spiritual application because marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. He is the groom and we are the bride. So I'm going to take those same four characteristics and apply them to the church. First of all, the church and our relationship with God also is divinely appointed union. Amen? Just like our marriage is divinely appointed, so is my relationship with God. It is established by God, and He is the one who controls the laws. We became a part of His bride according to His divine plan, not by our will. Through His grace, His sinless sacrifice, His death on the cross, not by my efforts. So it was divinely appointed. He called me by my name. I responded to His call, and I've been born again. And because of that, I'm a part of His bride. And He's the groom, and one of these days, we're going to go and have the most awesome wedding ever when we get to heaven. Amen? And it was divinely appointed by God. Second of all, it was a union that changes everything about us, just like in marriage. You know what? When I became a Christian, I became a new creation in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. All my focus changes. All my, priori- my priorities change. I'm a different person. Just like when I got married, it's not about me anymore. It's about ministering to my wife. And it's not about me anymore when I became a Christian. It's about serving and honoring God. Amen? Third of all, it is a union. uh, There is but one groom and one bride. Amen? 
Just like it's one man and one woman, guess what? There's one groom and there's one bride in the church. There are not many grooms. There are not many gods. Amen? There is not a Hindu groom and a Muslim groom and a, you know, a, you know, a chakra groom and a, you know, yoga groom and a new age groom and a big crystal groom. There's no, there's not, that's not happening. Amen? There's one groom and there's only one bride. There's only one church. There are not many churches. There's not a, you know, a Catholic church and a Lutheran church and a Calvary Chapel church and a Presbyterian church and a Baptist church. There's one church. Amen? And we're all part, and that's one of the things I love most about Beach Fest. I love seeing all the people who call Jesus by name, their Savior, coming together. And it wasn't about a, about a bunch of different denominations or a bunch of individual churches. It was about the church, His church. Amen? And that's who we are in Christ. We're all part of one church. And there is only one God, one Savior, one Lord, one church. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Amen? So there's only one way God God said to get to heaven, and Jesus is the only way, right? And then fourthly, the fourth characteristic about my marriage to my wife is it's a permanent union. And you know what? When you became born again, it's a permanent union. Amen? And aren't you glad? Forever! How long am I going to be with the Lord? Forever and ever and ever more. Amen? And He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He will never divorce me because God hates divorce. Aren't you glad? Amen? He's never going to say, oh, you're done. He's not going to, he's not going to say, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, I divorced thee. You burnt the toast. Get out of here. He's not going to do that to me. He loves me. It's permanent. It says in the, t- in the text that He will never leave you. He has adopted you as His child and no one will ever snatch you out of His hand. Don't you, don't you love that? So when you're going through a difficult time, guess whose hand you're in? You're in His hand. Man, that gives you peace, doesn't it? When somebody crashes into a building in your country, you're standing on the rock and it doesn't matter. It's all good because God is still in control. We're almost done. Three more verses. In the house, His disciples also asked Him again about the same matter. So they asked Him about divorce because this is a heavy question. The, the, the strongest statement against divorce is coming right here. And He says to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a man divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now this is heavy. He's saying if you are married to somebody and you get divorced and you go marry somebody else, you're living in adultery and you're out of God's will. Whoa. Wait a minute. Now, in those days, when people committed adultery, what was the penalty? They stoned them to death. So guess what? They didn't have to, you know, it talks about in Romans that you're, you're committed to your husband until he dies. Well, if he commits adultery, you don't have to wait too long for him to die because they're going to take him out in front of the city and throw rocks at him until he's dead. You know, J. Vernon McGee, you've got to love him. Have you ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? He said, you know, if we were still stoning people today for adultery, we couldn't drive anywhere because there'd just be piles of rocks everywhere. <laughs> be, we'd get nowhere, we couldn't drive, we couldn't fly, nothing. There'd be piles of rocks everywhere. Go out in your na- front yard, neighbor, big pile of rocks on his driveway. Oh, Right? I mean, it's reality. There's be piles of rocks everywhere. So we don't stone, they don't stone people anymore. But remarriage after divorce, except for the biblical grounds of adultery, is, is still, in God's eyes, as if you've gone out and committed adultery. Did you know that? That's still true. You know what? I've had some people get very mad at me. Because I sat down doing pre-marriage counseling, and I looked, and I said, you were married before. What happened? Well, we just grew apart. Well, you better go back and grow together because you're not divorced. Well, we've been divorced for a year. And, well, maybe in your eyes, but not in God's eyes you're not. You need to go back and work on your marriage. Oh, we're getting married. Well, no, I'm not doing your wedding because look what the Word of God says. Amen? And that's heavy and people don't like that. But you know what? I'm not going to stand before Almighty God and agree with this union 
Because I'm going to be accountable for that one day. Amen? And we say, no, there needs to be restoration. Now, again, I told you I'm going to get to the grace part in a minute, I promise. Because some of you may be sitting there going, oh, man. You know, that's me right there. What, I'm an adulterer now? Now, according to 1 Corinthians 7.15, it also says a believer whose spouse has chosen to leave the marriage has been released. So if you're married to somebody and, and you get saved and they leave and they won't come back and their heart has been hard and they've turned away from God and they want nothing to do with you, the Bible does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that you've been released from that marriage. Okay? Well, again... The Word of God, not traditions of men. I don't care how many people, how many Christians have gotten married or how many people have done it. What does the Bible say? Amen? Get back to the Word of God. And you know what? This was so heavy that when the disciples heard it, you know what they said? If you read in Matthew, the apostles responded and said, man, it's better not to get married at all. You mean if I marry somebody, that's it? Yeah, that's it. I can't? No, you can't. You're done. You're married to her forever. Oh. If you read Matthew 19.10, it says the apostles responded and said, well, maybe it's better not to marry. They, read it. It's in the Bible. That's what it says. Well, maybe it's better not to marry at all then. I'm going to be stuck. Yeah, you're stuck. That's it. And you know what? I want to encourage you with something. If you're here and you're married, you pray and ask God to be at the center of it and say, Lord, I give my marriage to you. And I don't care what struggles you're going through, God can bring restoration. Amen? Because He's the, he's the, he's the one that divinely appointed marriage and He wants to do a work. And if you're here tonight and you're not married yet, why don't you pray and ask God to be the one to arrange your marriage instead of you? Amen? Say, Lord, you've got somebody special for me. Let me wait. I love that song by Rebecca St. James. I'm waiting for you. I like that song. It brings tears to my eyes because I think about my daughter. But I'm waiting for you. And God wants you to wait. You know, when God brought, Adam, brought Eve to Adam, He didn't say, Adam, go find a wife. Here's a bow and arrow. Go hunt her down. That's not what He did. He caused a deep sleep to fall over Adam, and he brought his wife to him. Amen? But what do most guys do? Well, go get me a wife, right? I mean, where's, where's my shotgun, right? I mean, they have the wrong attitude. Instead of waiting upon the Lord and being still and letting God bring them their wife, they're going to go to the saddle rack and hunt her down, right? It's no bueno. That's not what God wants you to do. In closing, some of you might be here tonight thinking, man, this is heavy. I want to tell you something. In those days, in Jesus' time, they were stoning people to death for adultery. But isn't there a story of a woman who was caught in adultery being brought to Jesus Christ? Do you remember that story? See, the law of Moses was created to do one thing. It was to, not to give something that man would try to strive to achieve, but it was created to show man that he cannot achieve it. It was created to show man that he needed a Savior, that he was desperately wicked above all things. Because when you take the law, the Bible says the law is a taskmaster that drives us to the cross. And when you put the law next to your life like a mirror, you're going to see that you've made mistakes and you've blown it. And when this woman came to Jesus and the people came bringing accusation, and again, they were trying to trip up the Lord. But just in the instance of the woman who came before Him, she was down on her face before Him in a place and a heart of repentance. Do you think that she knew that she was in need of a Savior at that point? She knew she was going to die, didn't she? She knew that she deserved to die. She knew that they were standing there with the stones in their hands ready to do her in. And she knew that she was in need of a Savior. And that's exactly what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to show us our need for a Savior. And when we find out that we have a need for a Savior, you know what He's going to do? He's going to say, woman or man, where are your accusers? Because you know what He's going to do? He's going to take the sin upon Himself. And there are going to be no accusers left anymore. 
Then he's going to say, go and sin no more. And the woman was not stoned to death. Why? Because she knew she needed a Savior and because Jesus was willing to save her. Amen? And that's what the law is supposed to do. It's a taskmaster. And people try to, try to take the, you know, the mirror that's supposed to reveal to them their sinfulness, and they try to take the mirror and wash their face with the mirror. That's not going to do you any good, is it? You know what it's supposed to do? Say, man, I need, a wa- I need to be cleansed. I need Jesus Christ. I need to be born again. So it's pointed her to the fact that God is a forgiving God. You know what? Murder is not, one, is not in God's plan. But will God forgive a murderer? What's the answer? Yes, He will. Divorce is not in God's plan. But can God forgive someone who's been divorced? Yes, He can. And yes, He will. Amen? So if you're here tonight and you've been divorced, you're here tonight and you've committed adultery, and you feel like, man, oh wow, I'm, I'm done. I already did that. What can I do? If you've asked God to forgive you, He's forgiven you. And if you haven't, ask Him to forgive you. And He will forgive you. Amen? Because the law is there to drive us to our Savior. So let me just sum up what we looked at tonight. Tonight, are we, do we have a song? Come on up. Jesus warned us about the consequences of sin, and He told us to do whatever is necessary to flee from sin. He gave us four characteristics of marriage. It is divinely appointed union. Second one, it is a physical union that man and woman become one flesh. It is a marriage between one man and one woman, and it is a permanent union, as is our union with Him. And aren't you glad? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You, Lord, that when we have times of struggle and difficulty, that there is a rock that we can turn to, that You are a rock. And Lord, that You've given us Your Word. Lord, that we can seek out to know Your will, and to know Your plan, and to know Your heart. And I pray, Lord, that we would be people of the Word. That, Lord, we would daily just come to You, desiring Your Word more than our necessary food. And Father, for anybody who's here tonight that may be struggling with sin, Lord, I pray you would strengthen them, Father God, to do whatever, whatever is necessary, empowered by your Holy Spirit, to flee from it. It's a prayer for every one of us in the room tonight. And Lord, I pray for mar- every marriage that's represented here and every single person here who's going to be married in the future. Lord, we pray for our husbands and our wives. And we ask in Jesus' name that you would be at the center of our homes. That, Lord, that we would live our lives consecrated unto you. That we would esteem each other greater than ourselves. For those who are single, I pray, Lord, you would strengthen them to wait for their spouse, to be still and know that you are God. And Lord, to just pray daily for the spouse that will come in a year or ten years or whenever that happens. Just give them patience and Lord, help them to be faithful until that time. And Lord, we just thank you for your love and your grace. I pray again for those who went forward tonight down at Luis Palau. Lord, that you would be with them, that you'd be with the counselors that minister to them tonight. And Lord, we thank you that your kingdom's been added to May you be gloried and honored and praised. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's worship. Took your stand, huh?